thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. It's time to kick your shoes off, put your heels up, and listen to how to live your best barefoot lifestyle with your host, the barefoot podiatrist, Paul Thompson. Hello and welcome back to the Barefoot Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Thompson, the Barefoot Podiatrist, and today I have with me a very, very special guest to world-renowned biomechanist and co-director of the Human Performance Laboratory at the University of Calgary. I have Dr. Benno Nig. Welcome, Dr. Benno. Thank you. So for those of you who don't know you, like most practitioners listening in should have at some point seen or heard about some of your research. You've some people call you the grandfather of biomechanics. You've done so much research um, over the years and really helped lead biomechanics to where it is today. But for those of you who may not know that much about Dr. Benno Nig, I'll just get you to introduce yourself, Dr. Benno, and just a little bit of a brief history of how you got into studying and researching biomechanics. I am originally from Switzerland, and I studied in my young years nuclear physics. As a matter of fact, the specialization that I studied was reactor physics. When I finished my studies, it was clear to me that I didn't want to go into that field. And I did some teaching in a college with mathematics and physics. And at that time, I got a phone call from the, at that time, head of biomechanics at the ETH in Zurich, one of the world's best universities in Europe and, and worldwide. And he knew me from my sport activities and he said, wouldn't you be interested in coming into biomechanics? And I said, what is biomechanics? Because at that time, I, I never heard that before that word. Yeah. There were no books around and it was very difficult. So he answered me, you know, biomechanics is basically a mixture between physics and sports, the movement and physics. And you studied physics and you did a lot of sports, so you are the man for it. And he convinced me that that would be a good, good thing to do. So I joined him. And he died relatively soon after that. And so I was basically left in Zurich with a group of researchers and had to find out what I wanted to do. So we did a lot of different measurements. We kind of get tried to get the feeling of what biomechanics is and can do. And of course, one thing that we did was we measured accelerations during running, walking, and skiing. And during running, 
we realized that there were some peaks. And that was the start, how I got into that field of movement analysis, running analysis, especially, and biomechanics. So you pretty much just fell into it. It's pretty amazing that... Well, pure accident. And then you've had such an amazing career. It's like it was definitely meant to yeah, be. As a matter of fact, there's a second chapter to that after 10 years in Zurich. Once at night at 10 o'clock, I got a phone call. And, and you know, Swiss people are very proper. You don't phone at 10 o'clock except somebody dies. Yeah. But I got that phone call from Calgary from a Roger Jackson, who was the Dean of Kinesiology in Calgary. And he said, wouldn't you be interested in coming to Calgary? And I said, where is Calgary? <laughs> because I didn't know it. And so we started talking and it sounded interesting. So my wife and I decided to go and look at the place. And uh, about a year later, we moved to Calgary. Wow. So uh, two, <laughs> two phone calls determined my life and determined that I am now in biomechanics. So I guess the moral of the story is when doors open, you've got to walk through them, right? Yeah, and have a good background because physically <laughs> yeah. is a good background. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, and then you've gone on to have a, a huge career and created this um, human performance lab that's just created so much amazing research over the years. It's, wow. What an amazing story that you've just fallen into that. <laughs> yeah, we are very proud. We have just been ranked now three times as the best kinesiology department in North America. Wow, congratulations. That's Thank huge. You. So can we start by, I'm a podiatrist here in Australia by trade. Um, I've branched out a little bit over the years and now do a lot more, we call it barefoot rehab. It's more just natural movement and trying to get the foot to function more naturally, I guess. Um, is kind of the approach I try and take. But regardless of what side of the fence you sit on, whether it's um, shod or barefoot, there's an age-old argument around pronation. Can I pick your brain on this? I know you've done some research back in the mid-'90s, I think it was, around pronation. But just, just from your point of view, is pronation as bad as some people make it out to be or like is pronation a bad thing what's your take on pronation these days yeah you know when i started doing these movement analysis studies pronation was one, one of the first things that that came to to the to the forefront because you look at the foot and you think sometimes, you know, that, that, that cannot be good. And typically it's, it's over pronation or the high pronation. Now I 
basically went on and, and wanted to prove that pronation is something bad and what you should do to avoid that. Mm. And there were many different results that, that were quite surprising. The most surprising result was that when you take all the interventions that have been studied over the years, all over the world, and you make a summary, you get something like a result that due to the intervention, you change the pronation by about two degrees maximum. Mm-hmm. And that's within the error margin that you have anyway, because you don't know what the skeleton does. Yeah. So basically, whatever we do to try to affect pronation, nothing happens. The human body, the joints in the human body, seem to have a certain preferred path that they want to move in. Mm-hmm. And they don't care what shoes you put on. They will use that path. Yeah. Secondly, if you look at all the studies that have shown the relationship between injuries and pronation, there is no study that shows conclusively that pronation is something bad. As a matter of fact, there is one study that has been done in Denmark, I think it was, by Nielsen, that shows that the least amount of injuries have with people that pronate. So pronation is not something bad, it's something good. Mm. It should have pronation. And we have many different results that point into that direction. So in principle, the treadmill in the running store with the camera behind it should be taken out. It doesn't tell us anything that helps us to select a good running shoe. A hundred percent agree. Because pronation is a natural shock absorber, right? We need that pronation to help absorb impact. I, I don't think so. No? I, I don't think it's a shock absorber. No? The shock is much shorter. The shock is in the first about 20 milliseconds. Okay. Pronation is, is at about 100 milliseconds. Yeah. So pronation is much after that. So it doesn't absorb the shock. The shock absorption is in the heel part. Yeah. But so not, in the, not in the arch of the foot. So what do you think that mechanism of pronation is designed to do? Is it to get us over onto the big toe perhaps for you know, re-stabilizing and, and propulsion? Or like, what's your theory on where, why pronation would be, and I agree, I think pronation is a natural thing and we shouldn't be blocking it, but what, what's your take with all the research you've done on what, what mechanism do you think pronation serves in a positive way? You know, why do we have the foot form that we have now? Because we are climbing in the trees. Mm. And the thing we did with the feet was grab. So you have that arch because you want to grab something. Mm. 
and not because it is something that is important for movement, for running, for walking. That is because we have evolved from a climbing ape to a human. Mm -hmm. So we don't have to ask the question, is it really functional? What we do, we should ask the question, why do we do that movement? Mm -hmm. Why do we pronate? And it seems to be that that is the way how the internal forces in the foot are minimized. Nothing to do with shock absorption. Mm, okay. Nothing to do with injuries. Hmm. That's a really interesting mm. take on it. <laughs> but it makes sense, right? This is a, yeah, wow. That's just changed my whole thought process around what pronation potentially is and does. So you think it even just could be a leftover trait from, from our evolution? Yeah, and we use now those instruments to walk. It could be something much simpler than the foot. Mm. No, the foot is as complicated as the hand. Yes, yeah. And for running, we could have some, I mean, if you look at the amputees, when they run, they have a little spring. That's it. Mm. And they run as fast as we do. Yeah. And they don't pronate. Hmm. Now you're just hurting my brain. (laughs) 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 This has just changed my world. (laughs) So with that thought of pronation and obviously orthotics are a big part of our world now in trying to stop pronation or trying to correct the foot. Some people would claim they're trying to correct or change um, the foot. So do you think orthotics have a place in treatment, in trying to... You know, the, the, the thing that I don't like when you your statement, or show, orthotics should direct the movement. You should not direct the movement, you should accommodate it. Mm, nice, yeah. You know, let's take a car. A car has wheels that are on an axle, Mm -hmm. which is somehow movable. But if you drive the car over a certain terrain, the wheels will always do the same thing. Because there is one way you do that with the least resistance. Mm. To follow that movement. It's the same for the human body. When we do a movement, let's say a step ground contact, we have one preferred movement path. That's the path where the resistance to that movement is minimal. And we should make shoes that allow the foot to do that. Mm. 
if we don't do that, if we make shoes that try to push the foot in a certain direction, then the foot fights against that push, uses muscle activity or energy to stay in the preferred movement path. And all our attempts to direct or modify the movement doesn't work, A, and B, costs a lot of energy. So we should think about what is the concept of a good insert, a good orthotic. Is it to redirect the movement? No. It's to accommodate the movement, to allow the movement to do it in the least demanding way. Do yeah. you have any indicators that, that tell you when that is the case? The only indicator we have is the, the comfort. If a shoe is comfortable, it allows you to do that with the least, with the least amount of energy or work. Mm. But then is there a, with that mindset of, and I, I agree, I, for me, if I do make an orthotic for someone, it's normally to accommodate short term for me, and then we try and rehabilitate them out of that to get better muscle function. But do you think with trying to accommodate um, movement, whether it's through an orthotic, an insole, or a shoe, do you think over time that can weaken or become more of, a, more of a passive movement rather than an active movement? Like, do you think accommodating for too long may have an effect on the biomechanics as well? Like, do we need to eventually get out of those shoes for some period of time or out of those insoles to get those muscles firing better? Like, is too much efficiency let me, a bad Let thing? me tell you a personal story that I had. Mm -hmm. I had a knee problem. I did a knee replacement, and it was the Oxford knee replacement, which is basically you cover both surfaces with an artificial joint, and then you leave the whole structure mm -hmm. intact. When the orthopedic surgeons did that, he said, oh, you are a little bit walking like that, you know, the, the, the feet like that. Yeah. Why don't we readjust? Why don't we realign your your leg? We can easily do that. And I didn't think about that too much, but we did measure. We, we made some X-rays of the knee and X-rays of the hip, left and right. About three years after we did that real alignment and, and my hip was fantastic uh, at the moment of surgery. Mm -hmm. Clean like a baby. Three years after the realignment, the cartilage in that hip joint was completely gone. Wow, only three years. After four years I had surgery, and I got the cartilage, I got the, 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 the bone, 
And it was terrible. It was no cartilage there anymore. And that was only in three, four years after realigning, realigning mm. the whole thing. So we don't have to tell the system how it has to deal. The system knows that and has chosen certain ways for each individual. We should accommodate that. So it's not a real problem if somebody walks like that. Mm. I didn't have hip problems at all till I changed the foot position. Yeah. The orthopedic certain changes. So accommodate is more important than align. Yeah, definitely. But do you think even with accommodating, if we create too much efficiency and reduce too much energy expenditure in that like natural position that you're in, can that have a negative effect? Like with, I mean, we're so sedentary these days, you know, so our hips tend to not be as active as they may have used to be when we had a more active living, you know, lifestyle. Um, we wear shoes a lot more that are constantly trying to get us to have more like rocker at the front. So there's less propulsion. There's, there's more cushioning. There's, we're trying to accommodate. Um, well, we're also trying to change things, but can you become too efficient that then those muscles don't work as well as they should? I haven't seen it. No? Okay. No. I wouldn't. It's not a concern that I have. Okay. So in orthotics, the, the muscles in the arch shouldn't weaken over time? There's been claims. You know, I mean, the small muscles around the ankle joint yeah. are always under-drained. I mean, if you look at a population of 100 people, then 95 are under-drained. Mm-hmm. And you can take top athletes. They, the muscles crossing the ankle joint are typically under-drained. So if you do something to train those muscles, that is positive. Make those muscles stronger, that they can take over functions from the big muscles. Mm, okay. So that, that, that's always good. Yeah, so that's, that'd be something that most people should be trying to implement into their daily routine, perhaps. Yeah. So the small I'm, I'm, very, I'm, I'm very strong on that point. Yeah. And then you can change a lot of problems that you have by just strengthening those muscles. Let me give you an example. Mm-hmm. We, we, we have done quite a lot of research on, on that question, small muscles and pain and injuries. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, an anecdote, but it illustrates what I want to say quite well. Yeah. There was a, a, a Swiss athlete and he had the record over 5,000 and 10,000 meters in, in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. He was internationally quite good in the top 10. And I knew him because I gave him some advice from point of view performance. The one time he phoned me and said, you have to help me. I have a problem. I have Achilles tendon problems. 
and I cannot train anymore. I can barely walk. And this is my last season. Help me. And I have done this, this, and this, and this. So we have done everything from physiotherapy and the inserts and so on. And I, I was by accident in Switzerland. So I met with him and checked the strength of the small muscles. And came to the conclusion that the strong muscles were not very strong. Mm-hmm. Now, what does that mean? If the strong muscles, the small muscles are not very strong, you have to balance yourself with the triceps subra and the tibialis anterior. Mm. And the triceps subra is not good for balancing with respect to, to pronation because that axis goes right through the triceps subra. So you have to activate your triceps subra asymmetrically more on the lateral side than on the medial side. And that means huge forces. So I gave him a program and he was a professional athlete. So he had to had time to, to practice and he did between one and two hours a day intensive training for these small muscles. Mm-hmm. Isometrical, dynamic, different things. After three weeks, he phoned me and he said, I can train again. And we didn't do anything else. That's all he changed. All he changed. He trained, he strengthened those muscles and they're very strong. And uh, about two months later, at the European Championship, he was fourth in 5,000 meters. Wow. The problem was solved. And only by strengthening the small muscles crossing the ankle joints. That's amazing. So what sort of things did you give him to do? Like balance type training, like instability training, you mean? Instability training, one, you can, for instance, stand on one leg, go a little bit up and down and clean the teeth to make you unstable. Yes. That's yes. One, one exercise that you can do. So instability training, but also isometric training, you know, just press with the foot against the resistance. Laterally. And in all six directions. Okay, perfect. Yeah. So rotational, three rotational, and three translational directions. Mm. Mm. That's amazing. And that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Because when you look at personally, and this is again just like from a clinical point of view, most people I see who have lower limb pain, chronic pain, have terrible balance generally and which is an indicator that these small muscles are weak. Yeah. You know, if somebody comes to you with, with anything in the lower extremities and you give them the job to strengthen the small muscles, you can solve most of the problems. Because mm. instability, 
Because I guess really from a biomechanical point of view, whether it's gait, whether it's landing, running, like I guess all our body is trying to achieve when we hit the ground is stability, right? That's what our body needs to then either not fall over or to propel forward into the next step. And I guess the less stability we have, like you said earlier, the harder everything else has to work around those weaker stabilizers to get that job done of not falling over, which then leads to these chronic issues, right? Like whether it's a, a strain of a tendon or potentially plantar fasciitis. So that makes a lot of sense that we need to work more on stability. Yeah, and because, you know, when, when you are not strong in these small muscles, you have to achieve stability with the big muscles. And that means huge forces. And you know, if I say huge forces, this is not one times or two times body weight. This is between 10 and 20 times body weight that you may have in an Achilles tendon. And it is asymmetrical. So you have on the outside problems. Mm. Mm. So that would also then lead into, and I've heard you speak recently to a group I'm part of, and you were talking about um, stability training in seniors and how important that should be like as a, a thing we should be doing. Is that the same concept that as we, if we can strengthen these ankle stabilizers in seniors as well as high-performance athletes, we can improve biomechanics, I guess, or improve stability and therefore increase mobility, reduce falls, or in the performance realm, we can, again... And reduce pain. Reduce pain. At the same time. So because you don't have these high forces. Mm. You, you achieve stability with the small muscles. Yeah. Which is what they're designed You can do the same thing. I had a colleague, again, it's a story that illustrates what I want to say. Mm-hmm. A colleague I, I worked in research from a company, and he said to me, I have problems in the shoulder. What should I do? And I asked a little bit what kind of problems. They were muscle problems. Mm. I said, you, do, you should do strength training and with free weights so that you have all around, every, every little muscle that you have around the shoulder joint strong. Mm. And again, in about three weeks, he phoned me and said, I didn't believe it, but it's gone. Wow. And it's the same same concept, you know. Mm. You want to distribute the forces to many different muscles that they can contribute optimally to the final result. Yeah, it makes when sense. You don't, when you don't do that, when you only use one muscle, that muscle will be overloaded. Yeah, and that doesn't depend whether that is the shoulder or the knee or the ankle, the foot, it's everywhere the same. Strengthen the small muscles. Mm. And is that, uh, so when you're looking at, I mean, often as a podiatrist in, a, in our training, which for me was quite some time ago, things were very localized. If someone had 
foot pain or ankle pain, you're kind of looking just down in that area. But how important is it to also look at the whole chain and then do we need to strengthen perhaps some of those little stabilizers up around the hip to also help the ankle? Or do you think just the ankle is enough to, to work on stability? Like, do we need to look at the my whole chain? My experience is it doesn't come from the hip down to the foot. It goes from the foot down up to the hip. Interesting. So that if you have problems at the hip level, it may well be that the origin is at the foot. Hmm. So the, if I would be in your job, the first thing I would do, I would have physiotherapy for the foot or strength training for the foot. The first thing for foot problems, for knee problems, for hip problems, for low back problems. Hmm. Which makes sense. If you're not stable at the ground, you really can't be stable at the hip, right? Like if that's the part that's attached to the ground, we need to be stable there. Would you also work on those little stabilizers in the foot as well? Or you think just the ankle is enough? Yeah, I mean, you know, when you do that foot training, it automatically involves all the muscles, the intrinsic muscle of the foot and the muscles crossing the ankle joint. Because mm. they both get stronger. Yeah, okay. It's all combined. With the, um, from like a senior's point of view, would, is it the same type of training? Like the, just like therabands perhaps to get the ankle moving in all directions with a little bit of resistance? Some like heel raises, like you said, with some like brushing of the teeth to try to get that instability. Is it the same regardless of what level of performance you're at or what age? Yeah. Yeah. More important, the older you get. Yes. And would you do that? Do you find it's better being out of shoes to create that stability and to create that? Um, like make the, the ankle muscles work more or do you do that in footwear? Like what's your take on when doing stability training? What should we have on our feet? Doesn't matter. Ide- ideally, the ground should be unstable. Yeah, right. Or maybe a foam that is that thick. Yeah. Or something like that. That's ideal. But for some people, that's too demanding. Hmm. So if you start, you may start in your shoes. And after two, three weeks, you may take the shoes off and do it barefoot. And then after another three weeks, you may go to uh, a foam that you use to to stand on. Mm -hmm. Uh, Very soft foam where you are. They are unstable. Yes. So it, it depends on what, what your level is. You know? mm, what you're trying to achieve. And yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Because those instability foams are quite hard work, actually. And you, you feel the muscles in your ankle work really hard when you're trying to balance, especially on one leg, on those, the foams. Yeah, and then, about. you know, at the beginning, you may hold a little bit somewhere. Mm to help that stability and then you may drive it out a little bit and maybe after a certain while you may be able to do that 
Mm. You know, that's why at the beginning, the isometric exercises are easier. Yes. And you may have an effect with those. And then when you're a little progressed, then you may be doing exercises like balancing on one leg, going up and down, stuff, stuff like that. Mm. Yeah, amazing. Do... Do you think that's something that children should be doing as well to try and maintain? Like obviously kids generally have pretty good balance and stability as a general rule, I would say, if they're you know out playing and running and climbing trees and doing all these things that kids do. But do you think given the lifestyle and society we live in and that we kind of do see a decline in stability over time, is that something we should be starting with? like the next generation and then getting them really stable at the ankles to help them? Or is that something we start doing more in like, you know, mid to later years? Yeah. You know, I think you should do it in physical education classes. Mm. You can do it with with little kids and with uh, youngsters and Mm. uh, that you could put that in and make it like fun. Yes. It's more a psychological question that you can do it with children. Yeah. But but uh, if you can do it with children and make it fun, then I think it's a good thing to do. Yeah, awesome. So you couldn't overtrain them, can you? Well, you're not going to... No, that's not a, not a no. problem. No, amazing. Um, with a lot of the research, it seems like a lot of it's in the rear foot. A lot of the past research that's been done so with heel strike um even pronation to a certain extent seems more rear foot what's your take on the forefoot with biomechanics and stability and and injury reduction does the forefoot play a big role like what what's your take on the forefoot you know to understand that question, you have to look at the internal forces. Mm. Now you land on the heel. Let's say you do heel toe running. You land on the heel. The internal forces are relatively small because the lever between the ground reaction force acting on, on the foot and the Achilles tendon is rather small. Mm. That means internal forces are, when you land on the heel, two times body weight, three times body weight, something like that. When you go over mid stance and into the takeoff, that force travels to the front and the distance from the force to the ankle joint is about three, four times bigger than when you have the Achilles tendon in the back. Mm-hmm. That means the moments are about three, four times bigger. So you have moments and corresponding forces are, that are about three to four times higher. Mm-hmm. So during takeoff, the internal forces are much higher 
than during landing. And even so, most of the studies have been done in the past, looking at the rear foot landing. The thing that really happens that may be related to injuries happens during takeoff in the forefoot, where the external forces act with a big lever and produce high internal forces at the ankle joint, at the knee joint, at the hip joint. At takeoff. A takeoff. So if you, for instance, always move like that. It's off the so lateral side of the foot. Yeah. You swing at the end. That may produce much higher internal loading than if you roll straight over the foot. Mm. Now, this is not something that you should not influence. It is something you should influence. If you see that somebody supinates at the end of a step, you can have a little lift of the outside of the forefoot, and that allows you to go in a, in a straight movement. Mm -hmm. And you don't interfere with the natural movement, which is nice. Hmm. But you're trying to get so by loading that lateral side, you're trying to get them back off the big toe. Yeah. More, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. But then on the other spectrum where people are pronating too much and then not resupinating and are rolling off the inside of the toe, then you have a, a, a medial lift. To try and get more pressure through that B-toe to throw them back in. Theoretically, that's correct. Practically, mm. it's very rare. Yeah, right. You know, you, you see people supinating at the end. Quite often, you don't see people pronating at the end that often. No, I will say people roll medially off the B-toe, though. Which then tends there to are some people, but it's a smaller group. Yeah, okay. So with, I know you were saying with um, earlier about accommodating, not changing, but one thing I do try and change in clinic is big toe mobility. Because often I'll see people start getting a restriction in the big toe and my take on it is often years in, in shoes with that tight toe box, pulls the toe slightly out of alignment, maybe changes some of the muscle function and they lose a bit of stability or weakness to that toe and over time they lose range of motion in that toe. But often that path of least resistance around a stiff B toe, to me the way I'm looking at people walk and run, has a huge catastrophic, catastrophic effect through the whole system. So do you think trying to increase mobility through the B-toe is okay, or do we just accommodate that and try and help them get around that? I don't know it. No. Uh, we, we have not seen it often. Maybe your population is different than the one that we have usually in the lab. 
but when, what we do in the lab here, we see it very rare, and, and I, I have never even spent a lot of thinking on, on that question. Okay. So I don't Maybe know it's, I, um, I wonder if over here in Australia, a lot of people tend to wear flip-flops a lot as well, and I see that changes toe engagement. I wonder if maybe it's just a. Yeah, we do a lot of work with uh, with flip flops. Flip flops. Yeah, the the company. Ah oh, yes, yeah. And uh, we never have seen that problem. No. Okay. No. I'll keep um, getting some data and seeing if I can work out what's what's happening there. But yeah, there's a lot of. Um, yeah. Medial roll off here over the big toe for sure that I see in, in clinic anyway. But maybe I'm biased because people come to me with foot pain. So all the people I see tend to have some underlying biomechanical issue anyway. Yeah. Um gonna ask, what's your take on I'm I'm big on natural movement. I in my mind being barefoot more often for walking and just day-to-day movement, trying to help encourage muscles to fire, in my mind, is a good thing. You may have a different opinion. What's your take on the the barefoot movement, you know, barefoot runners, barefoot walkers? Do you think going barefoot is a, a good, a bad thing, indifferent? What's your take on it? First, barefoot is a cyclical Barefoot running is a cyclical thing. Yes. 1960, the winner of the marathon in Rome, Abebe Bikila. Mm-hmm. 1985, Pat Sola. 2010, Lieberman. So it comes in about 25 year cycles. Yeah. And it's very, quiet at the moment again when you look at the re- reviews and literature and, mm. and publications and, and studies. It happened around that 2010 when Lieberman came on and, and it's, it's kind of done. That's the one thing. The second thing is if you like to run barefoot, run barefoot. Mm. If you like to run in shoes, run in shoes. Yes. Whatever is more comfortable is the right solution. Mm. But you should not say barefoot per se is better than shoes, or shoes per se is better than barefoot. Mm. For some people, it's the one, for some people, it's the other. Yes. If somebody likes to run barefoot, that's fine. Don't stop them. If somebody doesn't like to run barefoot, don't don't make them run barefoot. Mm. It's no advantage with respect to the muscle activity. Mm-hmm. The group in Australia has shown that. Mm-hmm. The muscle activity is about the same in shoes and without shoes. So it's, you can have a natural movement running in shoes, you can have a natural movement running barefoot. So basically accommodate what feels best. Whatever is more comfortable. And as long as those people... Discomfort is an indicator that you should change something. 
Yeah, right. That's the um, the alarm going off to say that something's not right. But as long as those people, regardless, is what I'm hearing, whether you want to be in shoes, whether you want to be um, more barefoot, stability and working on stability is the underlying key to moving more efficiently, reducing pain, um, reducing injury. It's more about working on that stability really to, to improve your biomechanics, so to speak. And then the footwear is more just what feels comfortable. Yeah. And if you run barefoot, you have to do extra exercises for your small muscles. And if you're running shoes, you have to do extra exercises for the small muscles. Mm. You have, you know, when if you go into a, a a weightlifting area, everything is in the sagittal plane. Mm-hmm. And your feet movement, your foot movement is not in the sagittal plane. So when you train in a in in a fitness center, you don't find the machine where you can train your foot strength. Yeah. So you have to do some exercises extra independent of whether you run barefoot or shoes. Mm. Do you think those you see those vibration machines that you can stand on? I haven't used one, but I've seen there's a few gyms now getting these kind of vibration platforms that you stand on. Do you think that would help with some ankle instability or are you better off doing the, the things you sort of spoke about before with the, the foam mats and, and actually work? I don't on... know. I don't know that. Yeah. Okay. That's fine. Um, I mean, we try, we try to look at the effect of different trainings methods for strengthening these muscles. We didn't see a significant effect, which yeah. is what that means is, is, is difficult to say. Yeah, there's no conclusive evidence either way on that. That's right. So to finish up, what are you working on at the moment? What can we expect to come out of the, the lab? In yeah, the we are, at the moment we work, we work on different things. One project we do is we try to develop a system that can be used to quantify rehabilitation. Rotation? Rehabilitation. Oh, yes, yeah. Rehab. Rehab, yeah. So when you have, for instance, an injury of an athlete, when do you say you can go back to training, you can go back to competition? Mm. Or when you have, a, a, let's say, a knee replacement, when can you say this is now you are at 90% of a level that is normal? So that, that's one thing that we work on. Hmm. Another thing that we work on is, you know, the, the Vaporfly? Uh, Nike, the Nike. The Nike, the Nike yeah. shoes. I mean, nobody knows exactly why that works. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of the- theories around, a lot of dogmas around. It's the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church and the Islam Church. And, well, I mean, you know, it's really kind of, but nobody understands that. And I think we will, in about two years, 
have solved that puzzle. Really? I can tell you in about two years how that works or why, why that is better than the, the normal truth. Well, well, we'll be waiting patiently for that to come out. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> uh, it's not easy. No, it all takes time, right? So these are the, the, the two major things that we expect some results that are applicable. Awesome. Well, we look forward to um, seeing what you guys keep keep coming up with. It's, it's amazing the work you and your team do uh, to keep, keep us understanding biomechanics more and more. It's a minefield of... It's a complicated issue, biomechanics, and... Yeah, we, we really appreciate the work you do and your team does on helping us understand it more and more. So thank you very much for everything you do. Thanks for coming on today and and letting us pick your brain on a few of these topics. Um, and there's a lot of a lot of amazing gold nuggets you've you've sort of given us in there, especially around the stability training of the small muscles. Um, that's something people can definitely go and action themselves. Um, now, as soon as they kind of listen to this, they should be starting to to work on that ankle stability to to improve their their biomechanics and performance. So, thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.